everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Bantam Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Galtieri, back for another month, and we have a great guest here this month. We're going to be talking to the current field hockey coach, Ann Parmenter, joins us here on the Bantam Spotlight Podcast. Ann, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. Thanks, thanks for having me as a guest. You're now in your 17th year as the field hockey coach. A record of 146-105 at Trinity. You spent 14 years at Conn College, a record of 257-197. Uh, so you've been coaching field hockey for a long, long time. Yeah, I think I've been uh, I've been playing since I was 13. And, um, yeah, I've been coaching for as long as I can remember because that's what I do every fall. So, uh, yeah, a long time at it. Well, you have an interesting story, Ann. We'll, we'll get all into it as we progress here. But you actually grew up in England. Just tell our listeners what was, that was like. And did you always play field hockey and sports growing up? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I grew up south coast um, of the UK. And uh, pretty much the only thing I was good at in school was sports. And so I used to live for sports day every year when I was a, you know, a, in junior high, a little kid. And then got introduced um you know sports is televised pretty widespread in the uk and so i first was really interested in track and field athletics because you know there there was great coverage so i actually started running cross country when i was 11 for bournemouth athletic club um and i used to play pickup sports in the street with the kids all the time so soccer obviously was huge um there was not organized soccer for women back then but i would just play with the boys um and I wasn't introduced to field hockey until uh, probably middle school where, you know, we had a, a like a real PE teacher for the first time. And, uh, yeah, I just once I got introduced to, to field hockey, my PE teacher belonged to a local club and just encouraged me to continue. And so I sort of went down that pathway with the team sports rather than uh, the cross country. And then I just continued playing um, from that point on. And you graduated from Chelsea College in 1981. Uh, how did you come over to America? What, what, what set off that course of events? Uh, yeah, I went to... So Chelsea College of Physical Education is actually down on the south coast. And it originated in London, in Chelsea. But during the Second World War, they had to evacuate um, the, the college. And uh, after the war, it, it resettled down on the south coast. So... Um, I went to physical education college, and then afterwards I taught um, high school physical education. And during that time, obviously, I was playing competitive level field hockey. Um, And I had a couple of friends who would come over here in the summer, here meaning the U.S., um, to coach in a field hockey and lacrosse camp. And, you know, at that time, sort of early 80s, I, you know, didn't really have any desire to, to come to the U.S., hadn't really thought about it. And very last minute one of my friends had to drop out and asked if I would take her place and I came over and ended up being at a camp up at Castleton State College in Vermont which is absolutely beautiful and you know my perception at that time of what the U.S. was like was you know TV images of sort of Starsky and Hutch and Cagney and Lacey which (laughs) was so not what my experience was up in Vermont and um you know, got talking to some of the other coaches. There were Dutch coaches there and American coaches. And the American coaches talked a lot about the ability to do this graduate assistant position and coach hockey. And it sort of really intrigued me. 
Um, and when I went back to the UK, I did that for a couple of summers, went back to the UK, uh, the teachers were all unionized, we were called out on strike. And obviously I went into teaching to, you know, share my love of sports and we weren't allowed to do any after school clubs. And so I sort of decided to knock it on the head and say to heck with this. And um, I decided to come to the US. And at the time I didn't have a grad position to come to. So I just um, decided to sell all my belongings and would pursue graduate school once I got here. But literally about two weeks before I left to come, and I was just going to travel on a visitor's visa and do a bunch of summer camps. Um, a woman from Holy Cross phoned me in the UK and offered me an assistant coaching position at Holy Cross for my first fall. And at the time, I just said to her, so, well, I don't really know where Holy Cross is. And she said, well, it's in Worcester. And I said, okay, that sounds great. And so I literally just came over here with no real plan and two bags. And that was 1984. Um, I told my parents I was going to come for a year, and my mum reminded me the other day it's been a pretty long year, Anne. <laughs> so that's kind of how I ended up here. I just and I never went back. Wow! And then I know you went to UMass as well. Just give us your your timeline uh, leading up to the, being the head coach of Connecticut College. Yeah, so I, I did the stint at, at Holy Cross, and during that time, I um, you know I was playing club field hockey, and there were a number of women on the team that happened to be. Um, doing graduate work at UMass at the time. And so one of those women, um, Chris Saylor, is, it ended up, she's the head lacrosse coach down at Princeton to this day. She's been there for, for a very long time. So I ended up being roommates with about six people that were all finishing up grad school. Um, I did my GREs, applied, and I, um, I you know, got accepted into the program and then, of course, I had to pay for it because I didn't have a grad assistant position, you know, sort of mid-semester. So I worked illegally in a diner in Northampton, the Blue Bonnet Diner, just to pay for the first semester. And uh, after that semester, I managed to get a job at Amherst College as a resident director living in the dorm. And so I was working at UMass, and that first fall, I actually got hired by Amherst to be uh, assistant field hockey, assistant squash, assistant lacrosse while I was a grad student at UMass. And then the subsequent fall, I got the grad assistant position at UMass. And I think because of my, you know, close connection with Amherst and the NESCAC conference, after I was finished my graduate work and the job at Connecticut College opened up, um, I then, you know, I'd had some experience with, with the NESCAC conference, and that's how I think I was hired um, by Connecticut College. Wow. That, you know, as you were talking that story, you know, it was amazing to me. I'm thinking about it. What if you never came over to Worcester, to Holy Cross, that first year? Do you tell your, your, your students, your, in your, your teams, to try to take chance in life like you did to, to, to make things happen for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I pretty much, you know, I had two bags at the time. And I just packed it up, and I would just turned 25. Um, and so I definitely share that story, and I do. I do now with my, you know, with the Everest stuff. I've been fortunate enough to, you know, to, to speak at a number of of, it, of events, and I speak in high schools and you know different groups. Just sort of tell my story, really, of of how I got here, but then 
um, with the mountaineering sort of thrown in there, um, life is all about chances and, and you can jump in with two feet and grab everyone by the scruff of the neck or you can sit back. And so, and I feel very fortunate that thing, things have worked out the way they had. But yeah, if I hadn't have, if I hadn't have answered that, that phone ringing, um, who knows, who knows where I would be today. Let me now, let me just, we'll get to the Everest in a second. Let me just talk about your time at Connecticut College. I mentioned earlier, great record, 257, 197 overall, 14 years. Just talk about your time in New London and what that was like. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, no, I, I mean, because I sort of grew up on the south coast in the UK and then where I went to college was right on the the, the sea front in England. It's, it's the English Channel, so it's not the ocean, it's the sea. I mean, being close to the water felt very very at home for me down in New London and I, I really I really loved it down there um, the, you know the time that I was there the athletic department was absolutely thriving the sports were really really you know all the sports were doing really really well um, you know it was a small really tight-knit department good good people and um, I was hired as head field hockey assistant lacrosse and I never really, you know, I didn't play lacrosse in England because the seasons are exactly the same um, time frame. But I had, you know, been the assistant at Amherst and then being the assistant at Con College, I then played club lacrosse and I just, you know, I was around and involved with it. And then I, um, after being there, I think for four years, they'd gone through a succession of, of coaches and so I finally was then named to be head lacrosse coach, you know, and, a, and a, I laugh because obviously my background is field hockey and I feel like in a lot of ways at Con I was more successful as far as if you look at, you know, postseason honors and things with, with teams with, with lacrosse, but I was really fortunate to just be there at a time where we had some really wonderful athletes. So, um, yeah, it was a great, it was a great time. Um, you know, things started to change a little bit down there. Um, towards the end of the time that I was there. And I knew here at Trinity they were really looking seriously to building the AstroTurf field and really putting some, some resources into their sports. And they decided to split their field hockey lacrosse positions. Um, and so, you know, I was very aware of, of that. And, uh, you know, I decided that I um, would, would give it a... Would give it a uh, a look and, and that's what I did so and now you're in your 17th year at Trinity does it seem like it's been 17 years no I, I, I you know I look in the mirror and that's the only reminder that it's been this long because I don't look the same anymore but um, oh. the time has just gone <laughs> flying by um, you know and I'm really sincere when I tell people when I speak and to my team you know when you find something that you're passionate about it is true that it, you never work a day in your life um but I've just been really fortunate to be surrounded, you know, with, with great athletes and good people that I work with and to be able to come to work every day. It's not really work. It's, it's, you know, it's a privilege to be able to be surrounded by just great people who are really pushing themselves every day to be the best they can. Describe what's your, what's your favorite moment in Trinity so far in your 17 years? Uh, is there a singular moment that sticks out to you as a head coach? Well, I mean, I have to, obviously, when I was an assistant with lacrosse in 2012, we won the national championship. Yes. And so, you know, the journey to the national championship, um, Kate Livesey, who's now at Middlebury, Kate had 
come on board here as, as a grad assistant with field hockey and lacrosse. And so going from working with Kate as a grad assistant, um, going to her wedding, living through her kids being born and winning a national championship with her as a head coach is obviously an incredibly special, uh, a special moment. Um, I think, you know, as far as my team and field hockey is concerned, you know, we've shared, you know, I've had the privilege of beating every team in the conference at some point or another. Um, I think beating Bowden when they had a 38 undefeated um, winning streak up at Bowden on their homecoming was an incredibly, incredibly special memory. And then doing the same thing to Middlebury at Middlebury um, was great. And then we've hosted, you know, we hosted an SCAC final here and we unfortunately, we lost, unfortunately, to Tufts 3-2. to two, But just being able to host and then getting NCAA bids with the team, is, they've all been great moments. And I'm interested, you lacrosse, assistant lacrosse coach at training for many years, on field hockey head coach. What's the differences in field hockey and uh, lacrosse, or maybe if there's similarities as well between coaching the two sports? Well, I think what's happened with time, um, you know, years ago when I was at Con College, most of those field hockey and lacrosse kids, they all played. My field hockey team was the lacrosse team. Um and so a lot of those kids were playing both sports, and then it was sort of a field hockey, women's soccer. Those athletes were then, you know, lacrosse team. And now what has changed is, you know, there's a moving away with the coaches being split positions, and we're recruiting kids who are playing club, both club field hockey and club lacrosse kids. They're specializing so much now that there's, there's just not the same number of kids who are playing you know, that want to be able to play two sports. We we do get crossover now with women's ice hockey and field hockey, but, um, you know, the two groups of athletes, I'm still, I'm still involved, you know, with women's lacrosse. I do home game management, so I'm very close with our lacrosse coach and, you know, get to, to at least see her teams play. But, I, you know, my relationship with the team has changed when you're not on the field every day. Yes, I understand. That's, that makes total sense. No question about it. Now, I'd like to transition as well uh, to your other passion in life, uh, climbing, uh, and talk about your situation with Mount Everest, it's called the world's tallest mountain. How you got involved with that, first in 2004 and then in 2006? Yeah, so, you know, my background, as I said, I, I always loved any sport. And when I was, when I was about 12, we had a teacher in the UK, took a school trip up to the Lake District in England, which is a mountainous area, and, you know, I got exposed to camping and, and, and hiking, and we did a little bit of rock climbing, and then going on to physical education college, I did outdoor education as a sort of secondary concentration, and so I've always been playing field hockey, and then I've had this passion for the outdoors, um, and I've just been fortunate that I've been able to pursue both of those things, and I think... You know, my love for the outdoors when I'm out of season, I think, helps refresh me to come back into field hockey rather than just doing field hockey year-round. Um, but I've been doing a lot of climbing, and, you know, I'm very active in the local climbing community, and I have a friend who, in 1999, he worked for the Hartford Current, and we were going to go on an expedition to the Himalayas to climb a mountain called Arma de Blom, which we did, and it was a successful summit and had a great time, and so... 
first big Himalayan peak for me. Um, I've traveled, you know, other places, Argentina, Ecuador, the Alps climbing. And then we had this opportunity in 2004 um, to go and, and, you know, things didn't work out on that expedition, kind of turned into a bit of a, a shambles. M- my friend Michael wrote a book called High Crimes about our expedition because it kind of imploded. Um, this was the Mount Everest, right? Yeah, and so people can can go on and find um, a book called High Crimes if they want to read more details. But I I wanted to rewrite that sort of memory to make it a little bit more positive. And so got the chance to go back in 2006, had a great group of people, um, you know, people that were on the trip were all, you know, experienced climbers. And so we climbed from the north side, the Tibetan side, which is, I say, it's, it's not as well known in the public eye, but it's, it's, you know, there's still a lot of people go from that side. It's just the permits are a lot cheaper. So, you know, teacher's salary, then, yep, we go the cheaper side because this we funded this ourselves. So, yeah, so 2006, May 25th, I got to stand on top of Everest on an amazingly clear, beautiful day and spent about 45, 50 minutes on the summit. Um, and it was just, yeah, a very, very spectacular moment in my life that I've been able to share, you know, my story with people who've, you know, had conferences and I've been able to keynote and, and every year I go to Westbrook Middle School and um, I've been there for over 10 years now um, with one teacher. We go every year because he teaches a unit on China and Nepal and so I go and share my experience with the kids and have them get dressed in my 8,000 meter suit and and then I'm still active in the climbing community here, rock climbing locally and all over the country. Um, and I guide for Eastern Mountain Sports on a part-time basis, both here and up in North Conway. Very, very interesting. I'm interested to get your story as you're climbing up in 2006. Was there a moment when you realized you were going to make it? And like, how do you get through those mental hurdles as you're climbing up? Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, it's, it's a long process of going incredibly slowly. And so you obviously, your mind, you know, for some people, um, the mental aspect of climbing a mountain of that size, because you spend an awful lot of time just sitting around waiting. Um, and for a lot of people that just, that eats them. And it's, it's really, really hard. You can't prepare for that. Um, you know, and obviously along the way, um, our, our trip, we, climb, we acclimatized up on the south side, um, which we hiked all the way to base camp south side um, and then came back to Kathmandu and drove into the north side. So our expedition was a little bit later than some other trips, and so we sort of had seen some of the failures, some of the successes, and, um, you know, you're watching other teams either fail. Um, there were a couple of fatalities on some other trips ahead of us that, you know, you're dealing with some pretty bad stuff that you then realize you're then going to be hiking up and you have to, you have to keep your head together basically. And at high camp three, the night before we were going to head out, I, you know, mentally you're doing a lot of, a lot of inner monologue going on as to what's going to happen in the next 24 hours. Um, and that, at that point, it was just get out your tent, put one foot in front of the other, keep doing that, and until you get back to advanced base camp, you're only thinking about staying alive. 
And what was the summit like on Mount Everest? I mean, just give us a detailed setting. What is that like up there? Um, it's it's actually it's not it's not flat. There's sort of two different levels, and so there's almost like a sort of a, a bit of a sort of a like a church pew type of snow that you can sit on. So people were sitting. Some people were standing below it. Then there's sort of a, a secondary level. Uh, a little bit, little bit flatter. Um, we were lucky that there wasn't a lot of other groups when we were there because we were later in the season, and um, so there was enough room for our group. So there were six from our group out of a group of twelve um, that made it, and then we had about twelve Sherpas with us who they were given the opportunity to climb because um, a lot of them had never summited before, and so they were all the different climbing Sherpas. And there was only a couple of people from some other expeditions at that time. So we pretty much had the summit to ourselves. And it's littered with prayer flags. Um, people take mementos, pictures, lots and lots of prayer flags. And then the carters, which are the, the scarves that the Nepalis present to all of the climbers. So they're sort of a silk scarf. So there's lots of scarves and just different offerings um, of good luck and prayer. Uh, there was a picture of the Dalai Lama up there, and it wasn't it wasn't windy at all. So all of the flags were still, and you can see um, I could see all the way to the horizon, um, almost over 300 miles. You can see an enormous number of other of the 8,000 meter peaks, all the way to a mountain called Kachinjunga, um, which is one of the 8,000 meter peaks that's actually in uh, Pakistan. So. The, yeah, you're right looking at Makalu, Lhotse, Noopsi, Palma de Blom. Every direction is just gobsmacking, gorgeous. And you're just trying to process that, but it's a little overwhelming. That, that's amazing. How long were you actually on the top for? About, um, we sat there, um, I had my gloves off, I was able to drink some Gatorade. I was there for about 50 minutes, 5-0, which is pretty unusual and being very conscious that most accidents in mountaineering happen on the way down. Uh, therefore, I really was just very anxious about getting down. Yeah, that was my next question. How do you internalize that? You have the joy of making it, but then you realize you're, only, you're really halfway there in a lot of ways in terms of getting safely back down. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like hitting Heartbreak Hill in the Boston Marathon um, you know, or hitting that 18-mile mark because um, 18 miles in the marathon feels about halfway, that you, you know, you can't give everything in those first 18 miles. You have to have something for the finish. And so, you know, a lot of people get in trouble because they are spent, but they just keep going, and they don't turn around when they probably should because people either have this summit fever, but just knowing that you need to be able to, you need to be able to keep some in reserve because you've got to get off the mountain. Well, Coach, a truly an amazing story. I'm interested. How do you how do you have time? How do you balance everything with rock climbing and coaching? It must be very a difficult time management wise. Um, yeah, you you get up early and you go to bed late and you just keep <laughs> moving because if I don't keep moving, I'm going to seize up and stop altogether. <laughs> well, that's well said. Let's just talk the last couple minutes we have here. This year's team uh, a slower start than you would like. Uh, but uh, talk about the top returnees and what fans can expect as we progress into later September and October. 
Yeah, I know. We, you know, obviously we were hoping to start off gangbusters how we finished last year. We always seem to make a difficult time with Williams. Um, and, you know, we, we clipped some film to show the team yesterday, you know, the game against Tufts. Tufts, you know, lost in the national championship last year. And, you know, we, we hit a post. We had a defensive save against us. We missed the far post by an inch. Um, you know, right there, that could have been 4-3. And so those balls last year... It's a game of inches, and I feel like we're right there. We're very young, but we've got Kelsey Finn, who's a returning senior captain who was the National Player of the Year last year, and Kelsey's, you know, living it up just as she was, along with Chandler Solomini. Um, two of them are doing everything they did last year, but, you know, I think if we can just click with some of these younger players... We're playing amazing hockey, but we've got to be able to keep the ball out of the cage. And, um, you know, in any sport that's tough to score in, you can't let the other team score on you. So, you know, we're just trying to find that rhythm right now, but um, i got every trust that it's going gonna, it's gonna to come. What makes Kelsey so good, her game? Um, because she's just sheer bloody-minded, determined, stubborn, driven i mean she's got an internal drive that i think scares a lot of other athletes um she's just personally incredibly motivated and whatever she does it's uh, you know she could go climb everest she's got that same type of this is a challenge this is the mountain i'm going to climb it mentality and she will not turn around and coach, last question: What are the goals for this year's team uh, out of preseason? What can we expect going forward? Well, I mean, our goal, obviously, make the NESCAC tournament. See if we can uh, rock a few along the way. A few upsets would be great, and to keep playing way into November. Well, coach, I can't thank you enough. Best of luck as you look to accomplish those goals this season. Thanks so much for the time uh, for joining us here on the Bantam Spotlight Podcast. You're very welcome. It's great to chat. Great. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.